Hey friends, this conversation gets heavy in a lot of ways that end up talking about slavery and abuse and going back to abusers that can get pretty emotional. I think that it's a conversation worth having and a conversation worth exploring, but also recognize that all of us having this conversation were white folks who haven't directly experienced a lot of the abuses that we're discussing. So it's a conversation worth having. I hope that you join us on it. But if you're not in the headspace to hear that, I understand if you skip this one. Every third year, you shall bring out the full tithe of your produce for that year and store it within your towns. For those who have no allotment or inheritance, the Levites, the resident aliens, the orphans, and the widows in your town, so that they may come and eat their fill, so that the Lord may bless you in all the work that you undertake. This is the word in black and red. Hello, and welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I am your host, Michael Belong, the wise old Lama NB, joined today by the wonderful Ronnie, John, and our new guest, my dear friend, Pastor Sarah. Sarah, would you tell us a little bit about where you find yourself politically, your religious background, and where you are doing amazing things in the world? Sure. I'm a pastor of a church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I think my politics are really influenced by decolonial thinking right now. I was joking with Micah that a lot of my politics feel angry right now. I'm definitely activist in my leanings. I have a big ministry on TikTok as well that I'd love for y'all to come play with me over there at disorganized.religion. Uh, we do a whole lot of things at the church right now. We're amping up for the Pride Parade, which I'm super excited about. And we also just welcomed some asylum seekers who are staying at our place with the help of a great organization called ABQ FaithWorks. I do identify as a follower of Jesus and certainly on the progressive slash leftist end of the spectrum there. Well, y'all are going to so enjoy all the insights that Sarah has to bring us. In a couple of weeks, you're going to see that we have an episode on Sodom and Gomorrah that's Oops, All Queers. That is by design, but this episode is an Oops, All ADHD. So we'll we'll see how this goes. Um, <laughs> it may also be All Queers. I don't know. It might. John, are you part of the LGBTQ mafia? Oh, uh, no. All right, we'll take the token straight. It's fine. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey. Amen, yeah. amen. The cutest thing. I took my children to the game store earlier this week. My youngest child is non-binary and my oldest child is a, a cis boy and very, very confident in that. Anyway, we went to the game store and there were little pins for free there that were rainbow and one of them said gamer, G-A-Y-M-E-R, and uh, the other said ally. And so my youngest picked up a gamer pin. And then once I explained what ally meant to my son, he got really excited and grabbed it. And they both wore them to school the next day. It was the cutest thing. Oh, y'all, I probably am a committed pacifist. But the first thing that ever made me question that was when I met Ronnie's kids and just fell madly in love with them. And then the thought crossed my mind that anything could ever hurt them. And I suddenly dropped my pacifism. So, um, (laughs) so. So I'm a big fan. Um, I would do lots of things to protect those kids. So anyway, we're going to read Genesis 16 instead. (laughs) Genesis 16. Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to have children. Since she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar, Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from giving birth, so go to my servant. Maybe she will provide me with children. Abram did just as Sarai said. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took her Egyptian servant Hagar and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when she realized that she was pregnant, she no longer respected her mistress. Sarai said to Abram, This harassment is your fault. I allowed you to embrace my servant, but when she realized she was pregnant, I lost her respect. Let the Lord decide who is right, you or me. Abram said to Sarai, Since she's your servant, do whatever you wish to her. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she ran away from Sarai. 
The Lord's messenger found Hagar at the spring in the desert, the spring on the road to Shur, and said, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where did you come from, and where are you going? She said, From Sarai, my mistress, I'm running away. The Lord's messenger said to her, Go back to your mistress, put up with her harsh treatment of you. The Lord's messenger also said to her, I will give you many children, so many that they can't be counted. The Lord's messenger said to her, You are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You will name him Ishmael, because the Lord has heard about your harsh treatment. He will be a wild mule of a man. He will fight everyone, and they will fight him. He will live at odds with all his relatives. Hagar named the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Roy, because she said, Can I still see after he saw me? Therefore that well is called Beer Lahairoi. It's the well between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar gave birth to a son for Abram, and Abram named him Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar gave birth to Ishmael for Abram. I feel like every week I say, this passage is a weird one, but this one is a little (laughs) bit more straightforward. This is a story of someone setting things up to try and solve a problem, getting angry at their own solution, and then instead of trying to solve the problem in a healthy way, abusing someone else because of it. This whole story is rooted ultimately in systems of oppression that are hurting the women in these stories. As someone who has never experienced the direct effect of uh, sexism on me because I don't uh, carry around feminine characteristics very often, um, <laughs> I'd love to hear uh, some people who have experienced that. <laughs> yeah, so I, uh, I use all pronouns, but I was classically trained as a woman, as I like to say. <laughs> and I think... It's really important whenever we're talking about oppression and minorities to look at examples like this and remember that oppressed people sometimes participate in their own oppression. This is not to victim blame. This is not to say it is their fault. The fact that we are steeped in a society that cooks these prejudices and these oppressive systems into us in such a way that we we think it's normal, we think it's fine, and it doesn't even occur to us that, hey, uh, this woman is very clearly abusing and exploiting another woman who is, interestingly enough, from the nation where recently, previously on uh, Sarah and Abram's shitty marriage, <laughs> she was herself exploited. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, the the last episode I recorded here, we talked about the little run-in with the pharaoh at Egypt in Genesis and how Abram decides to pretend that Sarah is his sister so that he can get dowry money and, you know, profit. And Sarah is never given a voice in that passage. Mm. And now she's got a servant from Egypt and is denying agency to to Hagar. And I just think that cycle of abuse is tragic, but also really important to remember whenever we're unpacking systems of oppression, because it can get really complex when you have people who have experienced oppression also perpetuating it. So often in the story of the Old Testament, right, we see that this violence begets violence, that the violence that is initiated with the murder of Abel by Cain, right, causes all of this tumultuous violence that ultimately results in the flood, right? This this grand reset of all of humanity because of how far we have gone into this violence. And here we see the same sort of thing happening. Sarai is sold to be used as a sex slave by Pharaoh and then takes this Egyptian woman and turns her into a sex slave for her husband. You know, the term here is as his wife, but there's still this power dynamic, like that she isn't an equal partner, that Sarai is upset because Hagar dares to say, well, he's my husband too, so I don't need to listen to you and obey you in the same way that I used to. And that's what sets this up, is that there's a power dynamic that is shifted here because Hagar realizes that in this relationship, she holds the same position as Sarai, at least theoretically. Yeah, although whoever wrote the text didn't think so. Oh, yeah. Abraham has <laughs> lots of kids. I mean, there, there's an irony in this because Abraham is supposed to be the great patriarch, and yet it's only through Sarah that the line continues. So Sarah is really the one who's fundamental, right? Like 
he has all of these other relationships, but none of those kids inherit anything. It's only Isaac who does. So Sarah does have sort of power. She has this promise from God. She has all of these things, and yet she allows that jealousy to catch her, you know? That's why I, I really love the question that God asks Hagar too. Where have you come from and where are you going? And I wish God had asked that to Sarah too. Sarah, you were talking about one of these midrash, one of these stories that accompanies this, that gives us a little bit more backstory on Hagar. Yeah, so there is a midrash that says that Hagar was actually the daughter of Pharaoh. And she'd seen all these great miracles that God had done for Sarah and said, it's better for Hagar to be a slave in Sarah's house than a mistress in her own. Mm. And so Hagar doesn't actually go to Sarai's house as a slave, but comes with all of her maids and all of her wealth. And she, her willingness to accompany Sarai is, well, is backed up by this association in Jewish traditions of Hagar is associated with proselytes. So people who want to become a part of of the Jewish people, Mm. um, which also ties her, of course, to Ruth and that relationship between Ruth and Naomi. But the idea that she was very much a threat in the sense that she was also a woman of means, a woman of power. When Sarah was in Egypt, that she became a woman without power, right? She lost Mm -hmm. all of this power because she's instead sold into this institution of oppression and slavery. And then she comes back out of this place and she sees the symbol of her previous oppression, right? Who's right there with her. And, you know, and her husband's cooperating with it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's his lies that got her in trouble in the first place. I mean, this is what just blows my mind, is that Abraham just seems to go along with all this suffering to these people that he, he allegedly loves. Abraham is the least assertive human ever mm. in, in so much of... <laughs> That's true. God's, God's like, like, we want you, you to need... sacrifice your child. Okay. Go, go, go to a different place. All right. Uh, hey, honey, I don't think I can ever have children. Why don't you sleep with my servant? Okay, babe. Sure, whatever. Hey, um, you know that thing I told you to do? That's your fault and you need to fix it. Yep, you're, you're correct, honey. <laughs> the, the sound of a broken man. Aww. <laughs> Oh, Abraham, the broken man. No, I, I got to push back because last time Ronnie was on here, Ronnie made me feel guilty and was like, no, Abraham is sympathetic. No, Abraham is an asshole here. Like, yeah. A- <laughs> Abraham, Abraham could have told his wife no, right? Like, Abraham heard the same promise yeah. that Sarai had heard. And instead of saying, no, we got to be faithful, he's like, oh, I can sleep with that hot new chick? Yeah, let's go with that. I don't think he comes off as passive, a passive actor here. This reads to me as really manipulative. Oh, yeah. It's the only good guy in this scenario really is Hagar. Abram is being the worst. Sarai is being the worst. Um, You said earlier, Sarah, that you wish that God had asked the same questions he asked of Hagar Mm. uh, to Sarah. And what I would love is a much larger lens on Sarah and conversations with God at all. Because mm-hmm. the the one that sticks out is her overhearing the visitors telling Abram, hey, you're going to have a kid next year and it's going to be Sarah's. Yeah, she doesn't get to talk to God yet. Th- yeah. This might be part of, I suspect, the jealousy too. Right? Mm-hmm. Hagar comes back and is like, I've witnessed God in the desert. And Sarah's like, I've never talked to God. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, like Hagar's the first to encounter God in that way. And and I, I suspect that adds because Sarah's supposed to be this great, you know, progenitor of the, you know, the rest of their great nation or whatever. And and she's feeling absent from God. And this goes back to the constant refrain that God is on the side of the oppressed throughout the scriptures, right? Mm. Just over and over again, God is constantly on the side of the oppressed. And in this story, who the oppressed is changes, right? So earlier, God did intervene on Sarai's behalf. Mm. When Sarai was in the midst of Egypt, God sent all of these plagues to ensure that Sarai was protected, to make sure that she got out of the situation. And here... Sarai is like, well, shouldn't you still be protecting me? Like, shouldn't you still be doing this? 
But because she changes her position and she causes the oppression of someone else, that changes whose side God is on. But God sends Hagar back to the oppressive person who then yeah. kicks her out again. And she almost dies and watches like she basically puts her son in the desert to watch him die as he like cries and God intervenes, of course. But like, it's hard for me. I think that's one of the toughest parts of this text is that God says, go back. Mm-hmm. I know women who've been said, well, if you were just a better wife, your husband wouldn't abuse you, you know? And, yeah. and I, I hear that echoed in that kind of thing. And it's really hard to hear that for God to say, oh, you've been bullied and, and hurt by someone return instead of, I will lead you into freedom. You know, like it, that's tough. Yeah. It's certainly not something we'd ever want to try to extrapolate straight to someone's real life situation today in that sense. Right. Oh Yeah. Thank you, Sarah, for that. <laughs> I appreciate that pushback on that point. I do want to say that I think that we, we were talking a little bit before we got onto this about how weird this blessing of Ishmael is, right? Yeah. Where, you know, part of the underlying conversation that has to be had here is that in the ancient world, women were seen as valuable in as much as they were able to produce children, right? And so, like, all of that other jealousy and all those other things going on here, but Sarai is seeing herself as not valuable because she isn't able to produce an heir for her husband, right? And not just not valuable, but if she's not able to produce an heir and her husband dies, the inheritance goes to Eleazar, right? Goes to Abram's servant, who has an obligation to care for his previous master's wife, but it's not the same kind of obligation that you have if it's your child who's now economically taking care of you, right? There is that component as well here. And I think that when we read this story, it is really weird that Ishmael is a wild mule of a man, right? It is tacking onto this a lot of racial dynamics here. But this this statement, he will fight everyone and they will fight him, I think can be read as saying, your son will protect you, even in this abusive situation, that your son will be the one who fights for you mm. and protects you in that story. And I'm very open to pushback on that. But I think that that's one way of reading the text to say that's why she felt safe going back into this position that is very vulnerable and where she is going to continue to be abused by by Sarai. Yeah, but her kid's still little. Yeah. Like as a parent too, to go back to an abusive environment, I just, I mean, she found a well. I feel like, I don't know. That's really tough. She's putting her kid in danger. And, And we find out later that I guess Sarai thinks, or Sarah by that point thinks that Ishmael's mocking her kid, and and that's Mm -hmm. why she kicks him out again. It's not a safe place. No, absolutely not. And yet the families come together at some point because Ishmael and Isaac bury their father together. I might just add um, a class perspective that I think we're kind of hinting at, but hasn't come out fully yet. You know, we might also take this question of why Hagar would go back to the people who oppressed her and apply it to uh, the situation of slavery in the the American South and. Mm like, why, why did all of those, what was it, four million slaves at one point? Why didn't they just run away en masse? Like, why Why did so many stay in situations of slavery when surely if they, if they all ran, they couldn't have all been caught? But the Bronze Age was a golden age of empires, of states that, you know, it wasn't an empty, empty place where you could just go find a well, go find a spring and, and set up your own uh, yeah. home and society and everything. If you were an escaped slave, you were an outlaw. You were you know, liable to be forced back into slavery by someone else or to die in the desert. And uh, I think Hagar sees something like those African-American slaves, that there's a need for survival first Mm. that draws them to stay where they are, no matter how horrible it is, because the alternative might be death. But I think there is also something about Ishmael being this this mule of a man that, that also kind of hints at a way of finding liberation. You know, he's going to fight everyone who's around him, and that mm. means he's going to be tough. That means he can be free and can free her, too. Mm. So, there's this idea of maybe taking your your source of potential freedom from your oppressors, yeah. uh, even as you suffer for now. So, last thing I mentioned is people say that, why did those slaves just stay and suffer in slavery? Well, they, they didn't just stay and suffer. They did slowdowns. They... Broke their tools by accident. Oh no, I can't work today. That kind of thing. They they resisted the whole way through. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't passive victims, but 
but stayed alive. Survival had to come first. That's a really good point. I when I think about, I was in a job where I had an abusive boss, and and I stayed because my kids needed to eat. You know, like it it was one of those when you put it that way that this was the best option for her, and maybe saying he'll be a mule of a man is like no, he'll survive. He's going to be a strong kid. He's yeah. resilient. You know. And just sort of dovetailing off of that from the sort of perspective of a partner in an abusive sort of family dynamic, you know, that that question is often asked of women who stay, too. Not only are women counseled to stay, well, you know, he's, he's still your husband, you should be a better wife, but then on the other side of it, once they are believed, it's like, well, well, why didn't you leave him? Why didn't you divorce him? Why didn't you tell anybody? And I know that for many people in those situations, it is about survival. It is about, I don't know what he'll do if I try to leave. It is about, he'll hurt me, but he won't hurt my kids. It's about, I still love him. And I think that, you know, if, if you saw how he is when he's good, Mm -hmm. uh, and and that sounds so so empty from an outside perspective but i do wonder what the dynamic between hagar and abram was like when sarai was elsewhere because in addition to having a child on the way hagar seems to have been confident enough at least for a little bit to consider herself on the same level as Sarai. I don't know. After he didn't stand up to her, I don't think that they're going to be on great terms. Oh, absolutely <laughs> not. I'm, this is, I'm talking before. I'm talking before this. Yeah. Um, I mean, legend has it. They didn't have any more babies till, till Sarah was gone. <laughs> she may have gone back, but I think she probably had a different relationship with both of them. Absolutely. My, my point is that prior to that, I could see her having, you know, some level of believing that Abraham had fondness for her, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's been shattered, but those kinds of feelings take a long time to erase, even when you know they're gone. And to go back to the the discussion on, on slavery, right, let's t- bring that to a modern context. We know that there are millions of people in in the United States, at minimum, around the world, at maximum, who suffer every day under oppressive systems, right? And we say, oh, why why don't you just leave? Why didn't you just quit that job? Well, it took you six months to find that job, and three of those months you were terribly behind in your credit card payment, and you barely made rent, and you, you had the threat of homelessness constantly looming over your head. You know, you had to make a choice between uh, feeding your kids and looking for more jobs. You know, all of these systems that are set up to make you feel hopeless, like you're stuck at a well in the middle of a desert looking out on a desert that goes on for ages, and you have no idea how far it is to the other side. And our job as leftists is to come here and say, well, actually, we're making an oasis over there. We're forming a little community that's digging a well right there. You can come with us that far. Oh, look, there's another little community that's digging another well out there. And we're going to keep digging those wells until we're on the other side of that desert. Being able to say to Hagar in that situation, we're trying to build a world where your best situation is not having to go back to that oppressive situation in the first place, right? And so often in these stories, God is doing the thing that in their culture helps uplift the oppressed person, right? In the story of Onan and Tamar, where Tamar, again, needs to have a child in order to get inheritance so that she can survive in her culture— God is not just giving her inheritance, right? God is playing by the rules of the system and not ultimately freeing her and giving her ultimate liberation. I think that that is God interacting with us on our terms while trying to push us to build better systems in the first place so that we are in a situation where someone who needs to leave this abusive relationship is able to just leave and be supported instead of, like Ronnie was saying, oh, be damned if you stay or damned if you go. Progressive revelation is one of the most frustrating things about theology for me. (laughs) (laughs) Because, doggone it, I wish humans weren't so stupid all the time. 
I also think we have to acknowledge that this story was probably written down by men who did see women as property and yep. who don't understand, like, I, the God that I know would not send a woman back to an abusive situation. Mm. Would not appear to her in the desert. Like, God liberated an entire people across the desert 40 years, parted the freaking Red Sea, drowned Pharaoh's army, right? This is one person. How could God not find a way? And and maybe is it because she's a little bit less of a person because she's a woman? It still makes me mad. <laughs> and maybe that's what you're getting at, Ronnie. It's like it's there's not a satisfying vision of God for me in this story, except that God does show up and God does see her and God recognizes her right where she is. But God doesn't fix it all. That phrase that you said just there, though, Sarah, that'll preach. God doesn't fix it all. Well, and certainly the Christian perspective is we are the living body of Christ. We are the incarnation of deity in that sense, right? We are the living incarnation of God, and it is up to us to do the work of God. So, building those oases, that's our job. Yeah. But but the God that Hagar knew parted the Red Sea. Well, not yet, but, you know, <laughs> will part the Red Sea. And so, it's like, why couldn't God just scoop her up and find her a nice, you know, Moabite man to run off with or something? <laughs> I will just add in that um, I think there is a real sense of this story not as, I think we've kind of already said this isn't really a story of God's action as much as God acting within human failing and trying to give some restoration. But from a narrative view, I feel like this is the story that uh, the Hebrews are writing to tell themselves, how did we get so many, you know, near cousins around us that Mm -hmm. hate us and fight us all the time, the Ishmaelites, (laughs) the Arabs? Why are there these warrior tribes that just can't get along with us? And this is, in a way, a very humble story, almost, saying, like, yeah, it must have been something we did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was Abraham's fault, or Abram's fault. We must have oppressed them, and that's why they are at odds with us today. Mm. In, in that way of trying to explain why we have enemies, I don't know if it's at all perfect, but it is kind of humble that they at least said, well, it can't be that they're just evil. They're, they're our cousins. We must have done something wrong in the past. They must have been oppressed. I really like that take a lot. I like that. And I think that um, one of the things that comes up so often throughout Scripture is this idea of being seen. There's the story in the New Testament where Jesus is walking through a crowd and Jesus has been summoned by a very important Jewish leader whose daughter seems to have died. And so Jesus is walking across the city to go and save this girl and call her back to life. And while he's going on this very important mission, you know, called by someone very important, this very important healer going and doing these important things, suddenly he feels this hand that seems to steal power from him is the is the way that the gospels describe it that that he feels himself drained of power and he looks around and he sees a woman who has been bleeding for seven years, who has been left on the outside, who has been ritually unclean for all this time, who has spent all of her money trying to get healed so that she can come back into society and is instead left on the outside. And Jesus sees her and declares, you are well, just by seeing her. And here in this story, Hagar calls God El Roy, the one who sees me, Sorry, I, I suddenly overwhelmed with emotion, feeling like I'm about to cry. <laughs> um, there, there's so much to cry about in this story, but that Hagar feels seen, that she feels recognized yeah. in her suffering here in this moment, that God has heard about your harsh treatment. God has heard about these terrible things that are happening, and I'm not going to leave you alone there. That's it. For me, super emotional, too, that when we are in those desert places, that's where God is sure to show up. It's hard to have a whole lot to follow that up with. That's just really beautiful. (laughs) Well, uh, that's what I've felt like every time y'all have opened your mouth this whole episode. It's just been like (laughs) really powerful and, and hard stuff, but beautiful and necessary things. Like We need to be sitting here and wrestling with this passage and saying, God, why didn't you show up for Hagar? Why did you let this happen to Hagar, who, from all accounts, is just someone who's trying to do right by everyone in the story? She's, you know, if she was Pharaoh's daughter, she comes because she thinks that Sarai is so blessed and she just wants to be part of that. She's just trying to follow 
God, wherever God is leading. She's trying to be part of the people of God. And because of that, she gets used and abused and wants to run away from that. I mean, who wouldn't want to run away from that, right? And she's trying to do right by Abram. She marries this this gross old man. He's, what, 86? When, when <laughs> I, sh- I didn't mention in the Midrash, there's also a bit about Sarah having to convince her that it's a good idea to marry him. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Yeah, which is like weird and creepy. And like there's, you know, this 86-year-old man who's like, yeah, I'll marry the the hot young Egyptian lady. And she agrees to this. She has a kid with this guy or gets pregnant from this guy. And instead of being welcomed in and embraced as someone who has faced all the hard trials, she gains some self-confidence and then gets abused again and again and again. Hagar is the one person in the story who isn't terrible. (laughs) Even God doesn't come off great in this story. And we read these stories, and we need to read these stories and criticize what's going on in the story. God didn't go far enough in this story to help liberate Hagar. But Hagar's story doesn't end there. Yes. Right? Because she has a child, at least Mm -hmm. one, possibly seven, depending on who you talk to, right? Maybe more later on. But Like, the oppression that she faced doesn't end in her generation, but it gets better later on, in part because of her example and her story and what she instilled in her son and all of that. And so, that to me is a word of hope, that even if we don't see the fruits of our labor and the end of oppression in in our lifetime, that doesn't mean that the work that we've done is irrelevant. Breaking those cycles of generational trauma is a powerful and insanely difficult ministry. Yeah, Ishmael, I mean, <laughs> he doesn't have a whole lot to do with his dad after his dad is like, <laughs> kicks him out as he's a child and abandons him in the desert. Like, it doesn't surprise me that he becomes this wild guy. Um, mm-hmm. He definitely is going to have some issues with being cut off from, from his dad and all of that kind of stuff. And I think that's probably been become, like you were talking about, part of the story of these people who grew up so near each other, they're cousins, John, like you were saying, and yet have all this conflict. And and this is a really convincing origin story for that. What's also so beautiful here is in the Islamic understanding of this story, Ishmael is a prophet. The Ishmael is yeah. the, the ancestor of what would become the Arab peoples. Yeah. And Hagar this this running between the hills that she's doing, this running away, is the first Hajj, right? The first travel to Mecca that is ultimately carried out by every Muslim throughout their life or, or every Muslim who can afford to go. And so she is remembered as this early saint because of her suffering, right? And so yeah. we can't just look at this story from the Christian or the Jewish perspective. We should also bring in our siblings of the faith to say, Hagar is remembered as this incredibly important, beautiful person who isn't just the victim here. She suffers through the pain that she faces and then becomes the symbol for all people moving forward. And she submits to God, you know? And I mean, maybe there is something in that too. Like, I don't want to say that God teaches us lessons through suffering, but there is something to submitting to the will of God and the bigger picture versus just doing what we think is best for ourselves. And she certainly submits to, at least in the story, the way it's told, she submits to the will of God. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to say the will of God here doesn't seem great (laughs) from our perspective. And to, to loop back to the earlier point that we are calling out the fact that God is not doing enough in this part of the story, but that always has to come with the reflection that what are we doing to be yeah, enough right. in this situation. <laughs> <laughs> because Yeah, how are we caring for for women who have been rejected and who are out on the streets, mm-hmm. who are feeling abandoned? How are we caring for kids in the foster care system who've been abandoned by their parents or who their parents can't take care of for a wide variety of reasons or who've lost their parents or whose parents just need a break? How are we taking care of those parents? Yeah, no, there's so many questions that emerge. And especially today for the women who are facing so much oppression in Texas and Florida, right? I love that your Mm. church is taking in these folks, Sarah, who are facing this oppression today. You are doing the work of being the oasis for Hagar for the people today who are stuck in these terrible situations. Let's not end this story saying God didn't do enough 
because God didn't do enough in this story. But that doesn't mean that we have to stay there and not, not do enough. Not yet. Yeah. Right. Not yet. Right. In the in the vast timeline, maybe so. And one of the most beautiful experiences I had was one of the first nights that our guests from Columbia were staying in our church. There was a Jewish group in town. They don't have a place to to worship, and so they were meeting in our church because they didn't have a place to go. And they had their Passover seder at our church, and they invited our guests from Columbia. And somebody helped translate, and and so they're telling the story of this journey of liberation. Mm. Um, and to see that in the ancient stories, and then in the modern story of this family from Colombia, and I was like, oh my gosh, right? Like, <sighs> and here all of these people are together in a place where they're safe. You know, I I don't know. I I think the work of God is ongoing, and and I don't think it's complete. And I think, Micah, it's a good point to bring up. You know, what are we doing to be a part of that? This whole time, I don't know, I've kind of had the the meme in the back of my head. If you if you like socialism so much, why don't you go out and make it somewhere else, like in the <laughs> woods or something? And uh, I, I think in Hagar, we see someone who, who wants to just run away from exploitation and violence and uh, injustice. But, you know, they're, they're kind of just told, no, you, you have to go back to the society and you have to fix it. Mm. Uh, you have to find a way. And it's it's not good enough to just like try to hide away from capitalism and mm. imperialism, sexism, every other system of oppression. We have to, like y'all were saying earlier, go back and build those oases, those uh, those wells, uh, those places of liberation. That's that Oscar Romero quote, right? We have to be fully immersed in the world. Ooh, yeah. Um, and I I love. That's why that line, man, it's really shining for me right now. That the where have you come from and where are you going? Right, naming mm. where we are, we're in the midst of this capitalist system. All right, that's where we've come from. Owning our heritage, owning our past, and then say, okay, now where are we going? And owning our heritage is is looking at this story, right, and seeing that this mm-hmm. story is part of our past, that there have been people who have only tried to do good and yet get called back to be in the system. And I think that I want to take what John had just said and and reframe it a little bit and say Hagar is called to come back here and fight the system. It doesn't mean it's a fair fight. It doesn't mean that Hagar is given all of the tools that she needs, right? She's given this promise that this tiny baby that isn't even born yet is going to grow up to be someone who helps bring her freedom. Oh, wait, who does that sound like? Mary, the mother of God? Huh. But she still goes back and she fights for it. She isn't just some passive agent who takes this abuse. She actually goes to try and change the system for her kid, for the people who are coming next. And I think that that is true of so many of us. We can't just run away. We can't just hide in the woods. We can't just hide in the desert, right? We have to form community. Some of us are called to go and form those oases uh, far away from everyone else. But we're still called to come and fight the system in some way or another, especially when the system is trying to claim land in the desert. (laughs) (laughs) There's this woman at the well trope where um, it's usually a a romantic trope kind of uh, to future spouses, me at the well. So this happens with um, most famously with Jacob and uh, his future spouse, Rebecca. I think it's Rebecca or is it Rachel? Rachel. Rachel. That, That kind of theme gets repeated a few more times in Genesis. And uh, gets picked up again in the New Testament with Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. This almost seems like it being played on in reverse with God meeting Hagar at the spring while not making like a, a marriage proposal. It is kind of a, a huge promise. You know, you, basically she gets a miniature version of the same promise made to Abram that uh, she will be the a mother of a great nation of many peoples. In that sense, it's playing on that same trope that usually only reserved for people of uh, Israel, people of Abram's bloodline. So I, I just like that that aspect of, you know, it's like God broke the chain to go outside and make a pact with someone else and give them blessings and promises. The woman of the well trope is perhaps best emblemized by Song of Solomon, where 
discussion of water is often accompanied by all of these other discussions, that the well in particular, the shape of a well resembles something else. That oh in my gosh. Latin would be understood as Sorry, a sheath. I was today's <laughs> years old when I realized, oh my gosh. <laughs> I yeah, also so. was today years old. <laughs> Whoa. I think the cold academic way of describing it would be like yonic imagery. Yes, yonic in a imagery. That the well is yonic imagery and the tower is phallic imagery, right? And so meeting at the well is often this romantic, you know, moment oh this between characters. Um <laughs> <laughs> and and so it's interesting that uh, because the well is a sign of life, right? The well is also like this this pinnacle of life in the middle of the desert, just like women are in the ancient Eastern world, right? That women are this location of life that doesn't happen elsewhere. And so this this meeting at the well is very related to all of those other things. But oh I think you're exactly goodness. right that <laughs> that here God is coming and speaking to Hagar to say, you are going to be very fertile. Stay and fight this fight uh, while you're here. Y'all are being so smart, and Sarah and I are just over here going, it was about <laughs> sex the whole time! <laughs> the whole time! Spoiler alert, the Song of Solomon is all about fucking, and often about oral fucking and <laughs> anal fucking. <laughs> Oh, I yeah. knew that about Song of Solomon. I didn't know that about wells. <laughs> There's an Ezekiel passage about donkeys, too, that I, you know, did not mention until just now. <laughs> anyway. Ancient people and their double entendres. Proclivity. Yes. All limit. <laughs> we all come from puritanical backgrounds here and have to giggle about sex. I can't believe the wealth. Oh my God. I thought it was just because that's where people like socialize. If we do get to do an episode on, on Ruth yeah. and talk about um, her holding Boaz's feet the whole night. <laughs> and the feet how thing. feet is a huge euphemism too. I catch the phallic imagery. I, I guess I missed the... Ah, well, because our, gracious. because our culture is phallocentric and it hides right. yonic imagery. So, so yeah, when Jesse's rod blossoms etc yeah yes exactly one of the other things that i i want to expand on here is the contrast with ruth and naomi right where ruth and naomi's story is very much like this in that to survive in their culture they need a male descendant or a male relative to produce offspring with them to be able to survive in this culture. Now, you and I, dear listener, know that Ruth and Naomi are obviously lesbian lovers, right? Let's let's just assume that that is true and move on. Ruth and Naomi need this to be able to survive, and it's sort of in contrast to here, where Sarai needs offspring in order to fulfill this promise and uses Hagar to get there, whereas Naomi needs this offspring and sort of resists Ruth's attempt to help here. But when Ruth gives birth, what they say is Naomi has has a child, right? It's Naomi's heir mm. that Ruth is trying to like work with another woman to give her this blessing of a child, whereas Sarah and Hagar are working against each other, and they're doing it all for the benefit of a man. Mm. But yeah, the, there's also a power dynamic with Ruth and Naomi, right? Ruth is a Moabite, so she's an outsider as well, but they come together. They, like you were saying, they say marriage vows, basically. They commit to each other. And yet Sarah and Hagar are in an actual marriage together and yet don't, don't fulfill those vows in the same way. Do we want to talk about how this is a terrible example of polyamory and that there are far better examples, or should we just leave that Well, because none of it's consensual. <laughs> yeah. Right? There is not a good example of polyamory <laughs> as understood today in any scriptural marriage situation. <laughs> well, there's... Unless there's... you can be non... Non-sexual. So, if you if you include asexual relationships, I would say that there are many intimacies that Jesus has with the disciples, with Mary Magdalene, with Martha. Yeah. I think that Jesus was polyamorous in the sense that he loved many, many people very intimately and very deeply, yeah. and maybe not in a sexual way, but he certainly had covenantal type relationships that were very public and and made known. And and so, I think if there's any example of it in the Bible, that's what I would point to. 
I am an ace polyamorous person, and that's the best thing I've ever heard in my life. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. Aww. It's worth pointing out that, like, oftentimes people will make this argument that, like, polyamory isn't biblical because every polyamorous relationship in the Bible is a disaster. Well, girl, every straight marriage in the Bible is a, a disaster. disaster. Like, there, yes. there is no good example of a straight marriage in the Bible, except Mm-mm. maybe Mary and Joseph, and that's because they're mentioned for, like, two seconds, and then Joseph is supposed to be dead. Like, you know, like, there, there is not a good example of a healthy heterosexual marriage in any of the Bible, really. Yeah. No, it's always about power or subverting power. I mean, you look at, you know, David and Bathsheba, he abuses power, and then she manipulates him to get her son to be king. Like, it's always ugly and non-consensual, and it's about reproduction. It's not about partnership. And the only healthy relationships that we see throughout the Bible are gay. (laughs) David David and and Jonathan. David and Jonathan, (laughs) Ruth and Naomi. Like they're yeah. the only the the centurion and his boyfriend. Like they're the only ones that actually yeah. look good out of all of this. Yeah, people are complicated, but the the relationships we see that are healthy are not contractual. Yes, um, they're chosen family. It just goes back to the fact that if you want to have a biblical marriage, if you want to have a healthy biblical marriage, it should be to someone who gives you their armor when you go into battle, which is all a code for they got naked and busy. And then Sarah and Isaac, Sarah, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the potential of this being a non-sexual birth, a quasi-virgin birth? There is skepticism. And I I read even that there was some anxiety because Sarah had been in Egypt, right? And she'd been with these other guys who the scripture is very clear she did not hook up with. Um, But I think there was some anxiety that she got pregnant by someone else because obviously she and Abraham, Abraham hadn't conceived and so maybe it wasn't her it was his issue and it doesn't say anywhere that they slept together it does say that he slept with hagar so there are some folks who speculate that this was a miracle that happened between her and god and that the actual relationship the intimacy happened between her and the divine and not between her and abraham so you know one possibility (laughs) that you know that's that's not in our biblical text uh, but it is there that it's not explicit that he quote-unquote knew his wife. It is super interesting here that like there might have been this divine in- intimacy that causes Sarah to give birth to Isaac, and yet Hagar is the first person to encounter God, right? The first of the two of them yeah. to encounter God. That God sees the suffering and chooses to interact with Hagar and speak with Hagar first in the first place. But then Sarah suffers as a result of Hagar's pregnancy, and God still honors the promise. And Sarah and Sarah laughs like like that does feel like an intimate moment, you know, because a lot of people, you, you know, you speak to God with reverence, but Sarah laughs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> God says you're going to be pregnant. She just like cracks up. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know. I wish I had that relationship with God to just laugh when God told me to do things. <laughs> <laughs> I usually just get upset and try to go find a whale to jump into. But... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a good uh, good way to approach things. <laughs> Remember that you know in Spanish you don't say you don't use the formal language with God. It is the language that you use with friends. And uh, it was a reminder to me when we I'm doing baptism in Spanish, and and I was like, oh, you don't use usted for God. You don't use a formal you. No, you use familiar because God's familiar to you. Mm. God's close to you, as close to you as your breath. And you know what's strange in English is that the thee and thou that you read in the King James Version, thee and thou were the informal words that you used for each other. You use thee and thou for your buddies, which is why Quakers only referred to each other as thee and thou in some communities for a long time, because they didn't believe in honorifics. They didn't believe in all of these other things. Um, Right. You're just a friend. Exactly, exactly. Um, which is, my honorific is not Mr., it's friend, because I, I'm not a Mr., I'm a non-binary person, and I would much rather be your friend than your master, right? Yeah. And so, English has this tendency where we elevate everyone to this higher uh, rate, right? Everyone becomes a master, everyone becomes a mistress, and everyone becomes you and your, 
which was the formal version. Whereas Spanish, you know, does does the opposite, where there, there's supposed to be an intimacy with God embedded in our language that ends up in our conception becoming the opposite, where we only use thee and thou for God, and therefore it must be a sign of of honoring God more than anyone else. Because we're uncomfortable with intimacy, Micah. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Almost like sin creates distance and isolation or something. Yeah. Whoa. Crazy. Like like alienation? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, like like the alienation of one person to another when you're divided by class and systems of oppression that keep you away from each other, rather than building the solidarity that you need to overcome Abram in the first place? Marxist theologians, yeah. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there there is something about puritanical culture and, and about whiteness in general that does like create distance between people. And that was intentional because when you are intimate with people, it's hard to oppress them. It's hard to turn on them. It's hard to act against your neighbor's best interest. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, there's a lot of intimacy between God and people. And I, and I think that's actually one of the beautiful things in this story is that we do see intimacy between God and the human being, between God and Hagar. And I, that's beautiful. And God is going to this place that is traditionally the place where you pursue someone you love uh, to find her. Because it's in the shape of, uh-huh. <laughs> going to this place where you traditionally go to find love to find her and to call her back into loving relationship with God and to fight against the systems that that she's facing there. Well, thank you, friends, so much for being a part of this podcast. I so appreciate you being here. Now, Past Micah, take it away. Thank you, Future Micah. And of course, you, our wonderful listener. Together, we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at thewordinblackandred at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. Thank you, past Micah. Now, friends, let us live our lives so that we have an answer when God asks us. Where did you come from? And far more important, where are you going? Shalom. And now... Live your life so that you have an answer when God asks, where did you come from? And more importantly, where do you go? Where do you come from? Cotton Eye Joe. Shalom.